You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We are in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 12. We're a little early, but might as well get started and everybody can that's going to come can join us. Acts 5 and verse 12, all the way to a summation set of verses in verse 41 and 42. I'm going to begin by reading that. This is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the voice of martyrs, but this is a a sensible and non-sensational description of the persecuted church uh, with stories about individuals uh, and their coming to Christ. Uh, And we have found it, Virginia and I, very balanced and helpful. And uh, the voice of martyrs, I'll just put it here if you want to take a look at it. or I can pass it around and you can take a look at it. We've got a few minutes, uh, each person for. So I'm reading from chapter 5, verse 41, and then I'm going to back up and uh, begin in the verse 12 of chapter 5 of Acts. Sometimes it helps for people to know the motivation for a teacher looking at a particular passage of scripture. And I may have already shared this. It's been in my mind so much that I don't know if I have shared it. Uh, But we spent two weeks in Mongolia now many years ago. Uh, We've been four times to Mongolia. And I spent two weeks in the book of Acts and it's, it's very exciting to share the book of Acts with first generation, a first-generation church. Uh, Mongolia opened in the 90s, and uh, from a very Buddhist and communist-oriented culture, the church was, uh, especially through the evangelism of South Koreans, has really taken off in Mongolia. Uh, We went to start a pastor training school, which after a a few years of our feeble efforts, Mongolians took over leadership, and now it's a very thriving uh, biblical center for mission, Mongolians uh, Union Bible Training Center. Uh, it's, It's interesting to talk to the first generation Christian in the formation of a church. There is an energy, there is a a kind of holistic holiness, there is a concern really to proclaim Christ. Um, They have come out of a culture into a new culture and they find themselves resident aliens in their home culture. We also, uh, through our ministry in Ghana, I went through the book of Acts, and again, that's a first-generation set of churches in northern Ghana, uh, where 37 churches have been planted, and so when they have a pastor's conference, there's over 30 people of men and women 
who are leading those congregations. So my concern in looking at Acts here, where we are long established in Christendom, is to understand what lessons are perpetuated, what lessons of descriptive of our DNA, of what it means to be the church, do we need to carry over from the first generation of believers. So the early church sets a precedent for us. That's my concern. And that precedent, I think, is just really important uh, and strategic for us to constantly go back to. I don't think you outgrow the book of Acts. The book of Acts becomes the blueprint for, and as we've said now, uh, the believers were devoted to the apostles' teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those four elements were integrated in a holistic approach to what it meant to be the church. And last time we spoke about the, the, uh, the boldness of the church. They had great boldness in preaching and prayer. They had great grace in terms of their solidarity with one another and their sharing of possessions. And, uh, and they also along with that greatness, had great, uh, had great fear, fear of God, as well as uh, non-fear of man. And those three uh, characterized the, the early church. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Honored to be dishonored. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Honored to be dishonored. And it's almost like just a, a matter of fact, the, the, the description of persecution that the, uh, the early Christians experienced there. So let's back up to verse 12 and let's begin with prayer. Lord God, on this day of remembrance, uh, where the church in the West is called to pray for the persecuted church, uh, we do pray for brothers and sisters in Northern Nigeria especially, because of the widespread persecution they are experiencing. We thank you, Lord, for the uh, recognized growth of the church in Iran and Afghanistan, percentage-wise growing quite quickly. We do pray, Lord, for the massive growth of the church in Latin America and Africa and pray that it might be truly rooted in the gospel and in the principles that are descriptive of the early church in the book of Acts. We pray, Lord, for the 17 missionaries uh, that are, uh, have been kidnapped in, in Haiti, and, and uh, very little word now publicly, but we know our State Department is working hard for their release, and we do pray for their release and for their safety, for the children, especially in the group. And yet we know as we pray for Westerners that are kidnapped and persecuted, there's just so many um, believers around the world that suffer unemployment, suffer disgrace, 
uh, because of the grace of Christ. And we pray, Lord, for them, and we ask that we might be sensitive and concerned for them. Uh, help us now as we look into your word. We ask for your wisdom and insight. And together we give you thanks in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So verse 12 of chapter 5, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now you remember what sets the scene of fear is that Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead. And uh, twice in the, in the previous verses, it's recognized this great fear seized all who heard about what happened. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. I think we can be thankful that there is not this sort of radical judgment that God uh, does in an intervention in the life of the church, but it certainly proved powerful within uh, the early church's uh, rise. Uh, note the paradox of verse 13. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. That's a very interesting combination. Uh, no one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. I do think that should be our aspiration as a church to stand boldly for the gospel, and to be highly regarded by the people. Uh, there ought to be a, a winsomeness, a charitableness, uh, an integrity, uh, a sincerity about the people of God that is compelling and attractive. Uh, what First Peter says, you know, uh, even though they malign your character and all of that, Prove them wrong by the goodness of your works. Uh, no one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, here's the paradox. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. That flies in the face of so much of what has been heard for decades in terms of church growth strategy. Uh, George Barna famously developed two strategies for the church. One strategy was to grow your church spiritually. The other strategy was to grow your church numerically. And he said, do you have to have these two strategies? A marketing plan for building your church that is appealing and attractive and compelling, and a development, disciple-making model for growing people spiritually. I believe there's only one strategy. As you make disciples, you grow the church. You don't attract hundreds of people to make a crowd that's spiritually excited. Uh, there is one strategy that I think is outlined in the book of Acts, and this would speak to that. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded. Nevertheless, more and more people, men and women, believed in the Lord and were added to their number. If we are, if we are a people called out by God with a distinctive character 
And I believe that character is compelling. And I do believe it brings resolution to life's questions. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. We no longer see people as the world sees them. We see them as Christ sees them, as new creations made in Christ Jesus. That is convincing. It's compelling. It's attractive. So you have that paradox here. Verse 15, as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And you say, what? What? They're bringing their sick and they're ill. They're mentally ill. They're demon-possessed. And they're hoping that at least, and in their thinking of the, in the first century, the shadow is an extension of one's body. So that it, at least Peter's shadow, and we're not told what the effect of that was. We're just that we're told what the people were doing. Bringing their sick so that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. The line in John 11 that we, of the sermon we've just come from, most of us, um, this sickness is not unto death. Well, that's what we believe because of the power of the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. Uh, This sickness is not unto death. Which is important for all Christians to realize, I think, that there's a physicality to spirituality and a spirituality to physicality. We are not bodiless souls and soulless bodies. We 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 are not bodiless souls, nor are we soulless bodies. But we are bodies and souls in community. And the biblical understanding of the person knows nothing of the separation of, in the enduring understanding of the body and the soul. We are integrated persons made in God's image and redeemed by God's image. So the body counts. Our physicality is important to our spirituality. Our spirituality is important to our physicality. There's a whole package here made in God's image, and that's important. I fight the tendency every time we hit a miracle in the book of Acts to stop and sort of discuss what I think is the reasonableness of the miraculous. Because we are always confessing a resurrected Lord, a risen Lord Jesus. So I have the tendency to go back and to recite the the miracles that I feel like I've been uh, exposed to. I can't do that every time, though. So go back and listen to earlier tapes um, uh, uh, on our study of Acts. You almost feel like breaking into 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul argues for the bodily resurrection of Christ and showing the reasonableness of his argumentation in that chapter. There is a lot that could be said. I don't mean to skip it. Verse 16, crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. And then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. The gospel can never go out 
without getting a reaction, both positive and negative. It's inevitable it gets a reaction. I think a sign of the effectiveness of the gospel is not necessarily success. It can be the negative reaction. In verse 18, they arrested the apostles, they put them into public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out with a word, go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. Maybe that's why a lot of churches are called new life. Um, the idea being, and I would underscore the holicity of that, the transformation of that. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ Jesus, that they'd live into this new life. Again, an angel releases them from their incarceration and they end up the next day at daybreak entering the temple courts uh, and teaching the people. I don't know if you've ever encountered an angel or think you have. Um, I haven't, that I know of. Um, but I don't discount the reality that is expressed here. And our Ghanaian friend, David Mensah, tells a very interesting story that he is not dogmatic about. And uh, keep in mind, David has a PhD from the University of Toronto. He grew up in northern Ghana uh, and uh, was wonderfully saved uh, around in his high school years. And uh, uh, was a track star, would have been in the Ghanaian Olympics. Uh, he was that fast. Um, those were the Olympics that were canceled by uh, the tension over uh, Russia. In so many ways, a very rural northern Ghanaian uh, who grew up in a fractured family and lived on the streets and was part of a gang and uh, an Anglican African bishop uh, got a hold of him one day because he was searching through his garbage because the Anglican African bishop had good garbage. And uh, that led to uh, David's conversion. Um, a remarkable story. Uh, years later, then, he applied to come to Ontario Bible College in Toronto. It's now Tyndale University. And um, David flew there. I was uh, an associate registrar at this college. Um, and he had sent a letter to the school. He had been accepted by the school, sent a letter to the school saying that he was coming. That letter never arrived. And he was off by two weeks in the, uh, when classes started. So he arrived two weeks early in August, uh, thinking that somebody would be there to pick him up uh, at the airport because of what was in that letter that never arrived to our school. And... Uh, he spent three hours in the Toronto airport with immigration 
trying to convince them that he was an enrolled student, and they were trying to verify it. It was very hard to verify. Uh, two weeks ahead, nobody was at school. You know, just uh, They released him a few minutes before midnight with the airport closing down. Here's a guy that had never been on an escalator until that day, had never been on a plane, uh, and now he's in Toronto International Airport at midnight with the lights going down in the airport, nobody around. And he went into the washroom, and this was his prayer. Yesu, you've done so many things for me. You've delivered me from many dangerous situations in Yara. You cared for me when my father died. You provided for me in Accra. You helped me get my passport at the last minute. Now here I am at midnight in a country unknown to me. I don't know anybody in this country. I am here all by myself, but I know that you are here with me. You who have cared for me so much, I'm stranded. I am really stranded in a foreign land, and at this time it is only you that I can rely on to find meaning for me even this night. Where do I go this night when even the lights in the airport are all going off? He walked out of the washroom, and down the hall was only one person leaning against the wall with his arms folded. And David put down his luggage and walked over to the man. And he explained that he was stranded and that he had no way to get to Ontario Bible College. And he didn't even know where the college was. He just had an address. And the man looked at him and said, my friend, I am a visitor in this town as well. He had no luggage. I'll help you get there. And they walked out, got on a bus. They went to the subway. And David was beginning to get nervous, uh, especially getting on the subway. Uh, and the man kept asking him questions about his family back in Ghana. And David kept asking him what his name was. And he never gave him his name. He just would respond with a question about David's family. And on the subway, he said, David, um, you should not be afraid. You should not, be, uh, you should not feel like a stranger. Uh, this is all going to work out fine. And, you know, at some distance between the Bible college and the, the airport. So they arrive at 1 o'clock in the morning uh, to uh, Ontario Bible College because nobody's there. And the taxi comes in, uh, subway taxi, and uh, they pull up and a school van school van comes. Probably the guy's doing his last check. And uh, the man says, this person is enrolled in your school and he has a room here. Will you find that room for him? And the person had the keys, got him into his room. This is two weeks before school starts. Um, nobody around. Uh, David got to his room and he looked out the window and he saw this guy walking away. Not driving away, just walking away. As I said, David's not dogmatic about this, but without that individual, 
that night, it would have been a very, very difficult situation for him. It was difficult as it was. But uh, he directly sees the Lord intervening, however you want to explain it, and helping him that night survive. Well, the angels released the apostles uh, with unlocked doors, and they show up the next day in the temple courts in Solomon's colonnade. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together. I'm reading from verse 24 at day 21. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. They sent to the jail for the apostles, but on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported, verse 23, we found the jail securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, look, these men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers, brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. That would also suggest to us that they did not provoke any kind of resistance to the power elite, Sadducees, Pharisees, the high priests, these religious leaders. Some have said, you know, what if the high priest and uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had indeed said, well, this is our Messiah. On the very basis of a lame man praising God, as we saw last week, and just the, the power that was uh, evident, the miraculous power that was evident accompanying uh, the proclaimed and testimony of the resurrected Lord, what if they had responded instead of resisting? Uh, remember, their response to all of this is jealousy. It seems inherent within an institutional religious reaction to respond by squelching what God is doing. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Verse 27, the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. That's an interesting way of expressing it. So one expects that uh, there was certain duress. They were made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned. Verse 28, we gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, that's true. <laughs> and uh, the first... Uh, in the Pentecost uh, sermon in chapter 2 and, and verse 6, uh, where Peter is addressing the crowd, uh, 2 and verse 36, chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So there's, and then in the second message, the second sermon given after the lame man, uh, Peter says much the same thing. You crucified him. You handed him over. You did this. 
And yet, this is offensive, of course, to the religious leaders. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, and here's the line that stands out, we must obey God rather than human beings. We must obey God rather than man. And then in just a few verses, look at all that is said. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Now, remember, the push in all of this preaching and all of this teaching is that here is the answer to Judaism. Here is the answer that we have been waiting for. Here is the Messiah. Uh, Israelites have the privileged position of being, of hearing the gospel multiple times from the apostles as the resolution for all the promises that have been given, they are now fulfilled in Christ. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. Uh, and that's not Roman language, that's uh, Deuteronomy language. And so Luke, I think, is uh, not expressing how the Romans would talk about Jesus' death. He is expressing, though, the fulfillment of the curse that's leveled in the book of Deuteronomy, you shall hang on a tree, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior. Again, a Jewish way of speaking of the Messiah, a savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. You know, sometimes there's a lot of preaching in just a few words, and every one of those words was heard by the Sanhedrin and the establishment, because look at their reaction in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious. So they have gone from greatly disturbed to very jealous to now furious and wanting to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored. And here, I'm going to set this here. Gamaliel speaks up, and Gamaliel's uh, message is basically, look, revolutionaries have come and gone. And he refers to two. Uh, he refers to Thutis, and then Judas, the Galilean Thutis, appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and they all came to nothing. Judas the Galilean was a revolutionary. Uh, he led a band of people to revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Let this play out. You're going to get more negative feedback by, by hurting these people than by just letting them play out. Now, Gamaliel, you know, was the noted rabbinic scholar that taught Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. That, I think, is, is in Luke's mind even now as he describes this, of course. Verse 36, some time ago, it is, I read that, um, picking it up in verse 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men, 
you will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, those are the two lines that, that to me, rise to the sort of bold and highlighted impression. Peter's words were, uh, we must obey God rather than man. And Gamelia's words, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. And so how can we, as the church, do these two things, obey God rather than man, in such a way as people come to understand that they're fighting against God? To me, that's an effective evangelistic thought to have in mind. How do you obey God rather than man? And then, you know, that obedience to God would be done in God's way, in the compelling nature of the Holy Spirit. It would be done in accord with God's word so that end and means are God-directed. Not just a God end, but a God means. And we would be doing that in such a Christ-like, charitable, compelling way that people may come to terms with the fact that they're really fighting, not against man, but against God. They're not fighting against your intellect. They're not fighting against your rationalization. They're not fighting against your religion. They're fighting against God. Camellia is laying that out as a possibility. And that becomes a wonderful possibility. I mean, in the next couple chapters, we're going to hear that a lot of priests from the temple come to Christ. Uh, I don't think we begin to understand how Jesus put a whole group of people out of work because of the gospel. Well, in verse 40, the speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, to what extent were they flogged? We don't know. You know, it's 39 lashes. The pharisaical ideal was 26 on the back, 13 on the front, um, with a calf leather whip. Now, if you Google calf leather whip, you get a sex tool in our culture, which is really interesting. Uh, so where I found the description of a calf leather whip was something that's used in uh, a sexually perverted act. They called the, you probably could have done without that sort of sidebar, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> they called the apostles in and had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. If they were flogged with 26 lashes by a calf leather whip on their back and 13 on their front, they would have really been in pain. And I guess the front and back idea was so that there was no place comfortable. Uh, you couldn't lie on your stomach. Uh, you were really in pain. But Luke really low keys this. It's almost as if this isn't such a big deal. Um, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped speaking, teaching, and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And we should note, it wasn't only in the temple courts, but it was from house to house. Uh, and this is what's going to cause the gospel to take off and, and really for widespread persecution to be felt, is that uh, fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, parents and children of all ages were, as Michael Green says, gossiping the gospel. They were proclaiming the gospel of Christ honored to be dishonored. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.